If you've not been with us, we've had two wonderful speakers, Bill Vanderbush and Bill uh, Brian Orm. Aren't they amazing? Love having guests come in and uh, just appreciate you guys so much. But Bill comes in from Celebration, Florida, the city that Disney built. Hallelujah. And uh, it's the most wonderful place on earth and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Bill has just a tremendous profile in revival and in reformation. He's been sitting to interdenominational ecumenical circles and just bringing heaven in places that, you know, man, religion gets a little stiff and stuffy sometimes, doesn't it? You know, they need a little bit of that Holy Ghost lube sometimes, if you know what I mean. Get those gears moving. And so they're doing that. They're massaging that into, into so many wonderful people who carry so many wonderful things and just bringing the kingdom everywhere they go. He's an author. He carries powerful testimonies. He's a theologian. And uh, you're just this guy. He, and sometimes he's funny too. And you might think he's good looking. I mean, what else does this guy do? Oh, my gosh. Just trying to embarrass him now. I don't know if it's working or not. No, he's not embarrassable. But we love you, Bill, so much. Tracy, thank you so much for coming. You guys are amazing. Let's welcome Bill right now as he comes. Bill Vanderbush. We love you. You, you want flat or you want that? Okay, great. Let's bring that up, yeah. Yay. What is he doing with toilet paper? I'm going to use this later. I heard it when I said it. <laughs> oh, yay. Tracy and I have been uh, accustomed to really weird miracles in our life. And uh, I don't know, it's just, a, it, it's so fun to be here with Brian because there's not everybody you can tell these stories to. And uh, most of the time people look at you and like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I tell the story to Brian. He's like, yeah, I get that. So, yeah. We've had some weird ones, strange miracles. One day I was sitting on the edge of my bed um, reading this very Bible, actually. had it open and, and uh, sitting on the foot of my bed. And we have a, a small, at the time we were living in Austin, had a small small house and, and uh, not a big bedroom. And I had my eyes closed and I was picturing Picturing the universe as infinite nothingness that's actually growing bigger, which is kind of an oxymoron when you think about it. Infinity is growing larger. It's kind of strange. And uh, I was thinking about how there's so many galaxies. And, you know, and I'm thinking, how does God even make these things? Because, you know, they look like little pinwheels turning. And if you ever were in a, in a pool and you move your hand really you know, fast through the water and closely you look, you can see these tiny little swirling vortexes. And I'm thinking, maybe that's just it. Maybe like space and, and all of that is just like, you know, like God's doing this thing and galaxies are just swirling out. These are the thoughts that go through my mind. So as I'm sitting there, I've got my eyes closed. I'm just going like this. I think made in the image and likeness of God. All things are possible with God, and all things are possible to those who believe. So in that partnership aligned with the heart of God, the same limitations he has is the same limitations you have. Let's just offend you right off the bat tonight. Huh. I'm just sitting there just like this, and I hear the door of our bedroom open, and Tracy, I know I can perceive because I can hear her walking. She walks and walks right in front of me. I open my eyes because I'm just kind of in this zone. She walks in front of me. And then she goes around here and she goes over to the bathroom. She opens the door to the bathroom. All I can hear is doors opening in her footsteps. You know, I think she even opens the door to the closet and then she goes out and shuts the door. And I'm just sitting there just kind of doing this thing. Just 
just watching galaxies just kind of fling off my fingertips in my mind. You know, just being a child. I'm just about to teach a class, and so this is, this is kind of my, my go-to. I just kind of get in the zone. So I get up, and I walk out of the bedroom, and Tracy's standing in the kitchen, and she goes, where were you? And I go, the bedroom, just praying before class tonight. She says, in the bedroom. I said, yeah. She goes, where were you in the bedroom? I said, sitting on the edge of the bed. She said, did you hear me come in? I said, yeah, I heard you come in. You walked right in front of me. I had my eyes closed. You walked in front of me. You went to the bathroom. You went over here, and then you went out. And she goes, you didn't hear me calling your name? I said, no. She goes, Bill, I just walked into the bedroom, and you weren't there. Now, here's the only reason I tell that story. Some people sit there and go, what? I don't tell that story if my wife isn't with me because she's with me. She can actually verify it. So I think it's kind of important to verify things that are, like, miraculous. I won't tell you about the things that happened that I can't verify with somebody else just being present. But to me, that was funny because I wondered how many times that had happened before. Because if she wasn't there to tell me I wasn't there, I would have never known I wasn't there. <laughs> There's the seen realm and the unseen realm. And the Bible says the things that are seen are temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal. So what's temporal has less value than that which is eternal. Therefore, the things that are unseen are more real than the things which are seen. Yeah. <laughs> we were in uh, San Francisco. You like this story. You want to tell this story? It's a fun story. We're in San Francisco one time. You gotta get, get, get come up. You guys gotta meet my wife. She's so cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're we're in San Francisco. We're walking down Pier. Was it Thirty Nine? Somewhere down there. And uh, one of the piers down there. And we were um, we we're just walking along, just having a kind of a date day in between days at a conference. And uh, and as we're going along, there's this lady that's, like, walking in front of us. She's, like, 10 feet in front of us. And she's got, like, this mangy coat on and, you know, this little short thing. She's just kind of, like, stepping it off like this. And we're keeping up with her. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, at one point, she turns around and looks right at us and goes, oh, good. Uh, she looks right at us and goes, I hate you. And I'm, like, turning around to see who is she talking to. It was, like, weird, you know. And so... Kind of backed up a second, looked back. Nobody's nobody behind us, and then she turned around and keeps stepping off. And so, uh, so we kept walking, and uh, we, you know, not paying attention, like weird people on the streets, right? So we keep going. Now we're, you know, we're behind her, and pretty soon again, she turns around, looks at us, and goes, "I hate you," and then turns back around and keeps walking. So this was like seething hatred. Oh yeah. Oh, she was mad. And the second time she turned around, we, we realized it looked like she was looking through us. She was looking at us, but yeah. beyond us. So <laughs> we turn around and nobody's there. So, so then um, I did what any man of faith and power I think would do. And I crossed the street, <laughs> I went to the other side because there's freaky people in the world. Like, my goodness. I don't know what's under that trench coat. And I'm just like, you know, I'm not going to take any chances. So we're, we're like, let's cross the street. Let's get over here. So, so we just like cut through traffic and cross the street. Now we're watching her and she's on the other side. And we're walking at a pretty good pace. And we get ahead of her and we come to an intersection. And she's coming up along the sidewalk. And we're thinking, okay, at this point, this is where Tracy turns and goes. Well, I just like felt really sad for her. And I felt like my heart welled up with compassion for this woman. And I thought, well, gosh, she's really tormented. 
And I thought either it's just like a mental thing, but no, I think it's demonic, you know. It's pretty clear it's demonic. <laughs> and so uh, I, I say, I we need to do something. We need to go talk to this lady and just release the love of God to her. And I had no desire to do that whatsoever. <laughs> but he's like, I mean, It's yeah. not like I wrote a book on grace or anything. So we, I couldn't let it go, so I'm like, okay, we need to do something. He goes, okay, will you kind of stay behind me and I'll go ahead, because I think he was afraid she might do something to me. So we walked really fast, got to where we're ahead of her, we're across the street. And we crossed her, back the street, now we're ahead of her and she's walking yeah. straight at us. Yeah. So we. And I got no idea, I got no plan. I, I'm trying to think, what am I going to say? I just want to stop her and just say, you know, I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. I, I, I got no plan, I've got nothing. Yeah. I'm drawing a complete blank. And so he's locked eyes with her, I've locked eyes with her, and we are both walking toward her, but Bill's a few feet ahead of me, and we're looking at this woman, and as we're approaching her, I felt to just say, demons go. But I didn't say it loudly, and I wasn't going to be all, you know, out on the streets, demons go! But so, you put your hand up like this, right? I just you kind of put, put your hand, hand up like this. Side like and this. she was close enough behind me I could hear and her. I, whispered, I could hear her say, I whispered demons it. go! Yeah, it was just a whisper. And when I said that, this woman, she vanished, and I'm totally vanished. Disappears, and I'm like, gone. What? And Bill turns we around. We never get and to he tell goes, this story together. It's so much fun. Oh, I know, I know. It <laughs> sounds insane, and it blew our mind, and it blew our theology because we're going, "What just happened?" And he's going, "What did you do?" And I said, "I just said demons go." I was super relieved because <laughs> then I didn't have to witness to her anything. Hard to witness to somebody; they're not even there, you know. So we walked over to the spot where she was, and there was nobody around. There was no place for her to slip away. Actually, I turned around. And, I turned around yeah. to Tracy, and I go, "What'd you do? Yeah. What'd you do? <laughs> what did you do?" <laughs> she, she's like, "I just said demons go," and I was yeah. like, "Did you see that?" She said, "She's gone, like gone. She was yeah. there, and then she wasn't, and nobody else around seemed to notice this was going on." Yeah. And so we walk over, and we're like, "Like if she was here, we're walking like around where she was, like." You know, it's like, what do you do when you see somebody just vanish? And suddenly we got this download that we had run into. You know, there's, there's spirits that are assigned territory. And uh, you know, the devil's not omnipresent, and neither are the demons. And so if they're going to cover any ground at all, they've got to have some territory. And more than likely, there's assignments to that territory. And the Bible bears this out. Things like the Prince of Persia and whatnot. So, so I realized what we had run into was a physical manifestation of a spiritual entity that had dominion in this place or felt like it had some sort of dominion in this place. But, but here was the thing, that when we intended on releasing, going and releasing the love of God, first off, there was really no fear in that love because perfect love casts out fear. And the demonic doesn't know what to do with love, doesn't know what to do with joy, doesn't know what to do with happy Christians. So keep your love on and stay happy, and you'll walk without any sense of being threatened by darkness. Crazy story. That was right? the, the big takeaway for me was exactly like you said. There was no fear in the moment. It was only compelled by love, yeah. and it was simple. There was no fighting it. It was just demons go, and I had the intention of love, and that thing is gone. Yeah, and we didn't stand there and dwell on it for very long. We just, I just kind of looked at her and went, you want to go ride a trolley? And so we did, which... You know, what, what, what else are you going to cool. do, right? So. Well, I'm going to leave you with this. Yeah, so okay. Have fun. Just in, it's a microphone stand. So, weird, weird stuff. We've had weird money miracles happen. One night, Tracy and, and I are um, just sitting talking, and, and we had um, 
Um, we had a financial need in our life. Could use about $10,000 in one shot. I mean, who couldn't, right? And Tracy says, uh, just out of the blue on a fi- uh, Friday night, she says, you know, I think God's going to give us $10,000 just, just in one lump sum. I think he's just going to do that. And I had no faith for that at all. So I just said, my response to that, my intercession sounded like this. That'd be cool. And then we went back to watching TV. The next day, I'm on my way to Mexico on a missions trip, and I get a phone call from her. She's gone down to the store. When she came back to our house, there was a cardboard box sitting on our, our step. And we didn't live, like, in an in a uninhabited area. We were 10 minutes from downtown Austin. And uh, there's a cardboard box sitting on our top step. And she opens up the box. There's a very kind note in it with no name. Uh, just saying, you know, welcome back to Austin. We love you. And there was $10,000 in cash. To this day, I have no idea who left $10,000 in cash on my doorstep while nobody was at the house. I had a guy that I'd never actually met before call me up one day out of the blue after this had happened and calls me up and says, says, uh, I want to take you to coffee. And I felt led to go to coffee with this guy. And I sit down with him, and the first thing he does, he looks across the table at me and goes, tell me about a financial miracle that God did for you. And I thought, oh, well, $10,000 dropped on my doorstep one day, and I had no idea where it came from. And he goes, that's confirmation. And he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a check that he had made out with my name on it for $10,000. And he says, I came here. This guy's a wealthy guy, apparently. I had no idea who he was. Never met him before. He says, he says, God spoke to me and said, I'm supposed to give you $10,000, but to confirm it's the right number, I was supposed to ask you about a financial miracle, and you were going to tell me about a $10,000 miracle. He said, so that's confirmation. And he slides a check. Weird, weird, weird stuff. I love these stories. We, I, we never get to t- I'm so busy teaching the word, we never get to tell stories. These are those fun weekends, so we can do that. Um, <laughs> my favorite recent story, this just happened not too long ago. Dear friends of ours were in a marriage, and they were about to, about to split. We knew it was inevitable. Um, they, they were completely at odds with each other. There was just no love in the house at all. And uh, he calls me up and says, will you come meet me down at the bar, which is where he liked to go. And I thought, okay. So we go to the bar, and we're sitting there. And I'm feeling like, God, you've got to give me a word for this guy. I don't want to tell him the story. This is for somebody in here tonight. So you've got to give me a word for this guy. And, and if you know me, some of you know me for a long time, I'm not at a loss for words. And so I can't think of a single thing. It's almost like God is saying, shh, just listen. Listen. This guy pours his heart out to me for a couple of hours. And at the end of it all, now comes the time where I'm going to drop a bomb of revelation on him, and he's going to change, his whole heart's going to change, everything's going to be fixed, and I've got nothing. And he goes, well, I better get home. And I go, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, what is the matter with you, Bill? Make something up. I can't think of a scripture. I couldn't think of John 3.16. I couldn't think of anything. We step outside of the restaurant, and there's a crowd standing around outside. And this is a guy, by the way, who didn't like our church, didn't come to, didn't come to church unless his wife drug him there. He had nothing to do with God. And I felt the Holy Spirit not say, saying anything to him, just say, put your hand on his shoulder. So we're standing outside, and he's about to walk 
back to his home, and I just reached out and I put my hand on his shoulder. And when I put my hand on his shoulder, I just began to pray lightly under my breath. I don't think he, even think he could hear me. Uh, this guy's got no grief. He comes to the Presbyterian, visits the Presbyterian church. All right, so he's got no grid for this. And this guy starts shaking like this, just trembling and shaking. And I stand there for what seems like an eternity, and there's people all standing around us looking at this guy like, what is going on? And he's just, and all of a sudden he goes, I got to go. And he takes off running. And he lived a few blocks away from where the bar was. And he heads home, wakes up his wife, repents, in front of her, gives his life to Jesus Christ, and she wakes up like out of a deep sleep going, what is happening right now? They fall back in love with each other. Life is good. Marriage restored. Best counseling session I've ever had. I've talked at people for two hours. They go out and get divorced. I, I say nothing sitting in a bar and finally at the end go, and marriage restored. It's just so good. Oh, yeah, and that guy, he works for Disney, and now he is, uh, they're in the pre-production for producing Tracy's film that's based on a novel that she wrote that's out in, uh, on the bookstore out there. So, very cool. <laughs> Read the book, it made him cry, and he just, uh, so fun. Okay, get your Bibles out, go to Revelation chapter 3. When I was here a year ago, and I hear I'm supposed to talk about identity tonight, so that shouldn't be hard, that's my life's message. When I was here a year ago, I talked about new covenant identity. This is part two to that message, there's seven parts to it, so I'll see you every year for the next five years so we can finish the series, all right? <clears throat> Last year we talked about how you were created, how you were formed. You were built in a face-to-face -face encounter with a God who grabbed dirt together and breathed into dirt. And man became a living convergent zone between heaven and earth. Animated, filled with the spirit of God. In him you live and move and have your being. It's not just a piece of poetry. It's very real. In the center of human history, the great hinge point in all things of human history is this thing called the cross. And the thing of the cross created two worlds, a world of an old covenant and a world of a new covenant. And we talked a little bit about this last year, but this time we're going to go to the other side. <clears throat> the world of the new covenant is all based in a reality that God has made his home in you, that you are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that. There's a little inscription I like to write on the inside of every copy of Reckless Grace. And if I haven't written inside of your book, bring it to the table and I'd like to write it in there. And it just simply goes, you are in Christ. It's not my words, it's Paul's words from 1 Corinthians uh, 1 verse 30 where he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, he single-handedly decided to just make you his home. And when Paul wrote this, he was writing this to people he really didn't even know. I mean, we would have known the leaders of the church and some of the people that were there when he was there. But the church is always gaining people, always adding to it, always cycling people through. So when he writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he's writing it to people he doesn't know. What an audacious claim to be able to just simply say, you are in Christ. And so if you read that and you don't believe it, nothing changes. But if you read it and you believe it, everything changes. 
So you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that. Now, everything on this side of the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, everything over here, this old covenant reality that existed 1,300 years prior to the cross, was all rooted in a perspective of distance and separation from God. Man saw himself as having to somehow do something to get close to a God who actually wanted to dwell in and within him and wanted to draw you into him. And Jesus is alluding to this. He says like in John 14, 20, in that day you will know I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. So he, he has this hinting that he is doing to this new covenant reality of union that's coming up. In John 17, he says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I give to them so that they may be one, just like we are one. That's how he defines the unity. He says, Father, I want them to look just like us. Father, Spirit, and Son, that they may be one, just like we are one. I in you, you in me, and I in them. In other words, we're brought into this beautiful family of God. We're actually brought into the center of the Trinity. It's almost like there's a, there's a dance going on, and you're brought into it. They may be one, just like we are one. I in you, you in me, and I in them, perfected in this unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them just like you love me. So Jesus is, is speaking about a reality that is, is, is to come, but when does it come? Right here, at this point in time. See, th that reality is now. We live in a new covenant reality. We live in a whole new dimension, a whole new world, where you are actually in, endued with the Spirit of God that indwells, lives in you. He's now made the center of who you are, his throne. You are a type of sh a shadow, a model of the throne room of God, a prototype of the throne room of God. Around the throne in Revelation chapter 4, 24 elders are bowed down around the throne. Do you know how many ribs you got in your body? Do we have any doctors in the room that can verify this? There are 24 ribs that are actually bent, bowed down around your heart. You are a type, a shadow, a living prototype of a much greater reality called the throne room of God. The holy of holies is closer than you think. This is such an offensive message and it's going to get worse. Hang on. So, on this side of the cross, everything is distance, separation from God. People are somehow trying to get close to God, and they can't seem to get it done. And so people will come up to Jesus, and they'll ask him questions. And the questions are things like this. Hey, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at a rich young ruler and says, sell everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Uh, 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 by the way, a rule he only ever told one person. It's not in the law. Jesus is making up new rules. And he's making up the one rule that this guy is not going to be able to follow. Because see, what he's doing is he's creating an impossible system. He's creating a system whereby none of us can actually follow any of the rules. We all have to 100% rely on his grace or we are in serious trouble. <laughs> That's going to come in so handy. So, rich young ruler, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Stop and think about that for a second. If getting rid of all of your stuff is the prerequisite for being in, didn't you just disqualify the person you just gave all your stuff to? 
whoa, I'm in. Here, here's the keys to my BMW. Enjoy hell. I mean, come on, is that really how this goes? No. It's not the way this works. It's not how you get in. I mean, Jesus is making up new rules on the spot. And then he tells fun stories, stories that we call parables. None of these stories, by the way, have ever mentioned on that side of the cross again. And they're old covenant language spoken to an old covenant audience, and he gives them old covenant interpretations. As a matter of fact, it's not that the stories are bad. They're great stories, but the only way that you can get the true meaning out of the stories is by looking at them through a completely different mindset, a new covenant lens of union rather than distance or separation. Because every time, for some reason, we go back to this side of the cross, representing the old covenant side over here, for whatever reason, we take off our glasses of union, and then we just stand here and we start looking at it from an old covenant mindset. We read even the parables of Jesus and they produce in us a sorrow and a, and a fear and worry and all kinds of crazy things start happening in us. And pretty soon we're back into a works mentality again. And the only answer is to get back to the cross. And then, oh, good. Yay. All right. I remind myself I'm forgiven. I don't know what happened there. And then we go back and revisit. We do this over and over again. Here's what I'm proposing. Keep your new covenant glasses on. Come back to this side of the cross, and you'll see, I believe, what he meant for us to see. Let me give you an example. In the parable of the seed and the sower, it's a common parable. Parable of the seed and the sower. A sower goes forth to sow, and when he sows, he sows on four different kinds of dirt. How many remember this story? So I don't have to go through it in too much detail. In the story, the sower sows. He's just like chunking seed everywhere, like he's got an unlimited supply. Yeah. And so, here it goes, sower in the soils, and you look at the story, and you go, which one of the dirts am I? Aha, uh -huh, there's three bad dirts and one good one. I got to be the good dirt. So that the seed of the word can take root and bear fruit. Nice, right? Here's the problem with that. It's all on you. Are you good enough? Did you do it right enough? Did you tend to the seed well enough? Could you have done better? Next thing you know, you've got all this fear and worry and anxiety, and oh my goodness, did I do well enough? See, in John 15, 11, Jesus says, he's talking about the words that he speaks, and he says, the words that I've spoken unto you, these things I've spoken unto you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. In other words, the reason I've been talking is to infuse you with joy. And then he goes on to observe but as I'm speaking, sorrow is filling your heart. In other words, they're missing the point. So I've often wondered, how can we go back to Jesus' teachings and find the joy in them? Hey, maybe we keep the new covenant lenses on. Because when you look at the story of the parable of the seed and the sower, you suddenly begin to realize, wait a minute. If I'm just one of the dirts, that's still distance and separation because Jesus is the sower. But if I'm in him and he is in me, I'm not the dirt. I'm the sower. I know, right? You feel that? It's called joy. That's what Jesus said you would feel when you get it right. Because now when you realize, wait, I'm in the sower and the sower is in me, now you realize the story is a revelation. It's a new covenant revelation of your mission, commission, and what you have access to in terms of heaven's resources. Wow. I can just throw the seed of the gospel around, good news, like I've got an unlimited supply? Yes. Why? Because the fields are all white. Just throw it everywhere. Let's try another parable. <clears throat> Here's a harder one. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins. You guys remember this one? Here's the story. There's a wedding coming up. Somebody else's wedding. 
And the invitations go out, and in the invitation, the guest list, there's ten virgins. Five of them are wise virgins, five of them are foolish virgins. The wise ones, they have their lamps full of oil and ready to go, because that's what you have to have to get into the wedding, is a lamp full of oil. The foolish ones, they're like, you know, the wise ones are like accountants, and the foolish ones are like, like artists, like me. Other things we got to do, we'll get around to getting the oil eventually. All of a sudden, whoa, the call goes out. We're supposed to be at the wedding. Lamps are empty. They run and say to the wise ones, hey, can you hook us up with some oil? And the wise ones go, no, go get your own, which is super Christian. So much sacrifice. Love the sacrifice on that. It's just so beautiful. Ask yourself this question. You really want to be either one of these two characters in this play? Because quite honestly, they're both pretty horrible. So here's the rule. Find Jesus in the story and then you find you. Wait, 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 wait. Where's Jesus in the story? He's the bridegroom. Yeah. Are you really an invited guest to somebody else's wedding in this new covenant? No. The wedding is about you. And according to tradition, he'll bring you all the oil you'll ever need. Why? Because he's romancing you. Feel that? It's called joy. That's what he said you would feel when you get it right. If you read the words of Jesus, who is love, and perfect love casts out fear, and you get afraid when you read the words of Jesus, go back and read them again through the lens of the new covenant because fear will never be the proper response to the words of the love that casts out fear. Mm-hmm. When you read the story and go through all the parables, it's fun. Every time you find Jesus, you find you. It'll give you a whole new picture. And some parables don't have Jesus in them. You know what? That parable's not about you anymore. Dare you. Just go, th go through the parables. Have fun with this. This will be like a great Bible study. Good homework for you once you leave this conference. Let's do one more. Um, the parable of the prodigal son. certain man has two sons. The younger one says to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. It's essentially what he's saying because that's when you get an inheritance is when the dad dies. Dad, I wish you were dead. And the father gives the son his inheritance. And the father lets the son take his inheritance and, and go and take his journey without any condemnation. And the son goes out and he wastes it in the worst possible way. He comes to himself and he becomes completely twisted in his perspective of the love of the father and his own personal identity. And he thinks to himself, I've got one thing left and go and return to my father and I can just be a servant. And a lot of people come walking into church with that mindset. I'm just here to serve. And what they're essentially doing is penance for everything they think they've done wrong. But what the father does is he runs, and before the son can even say his repentance speech, the father has hugged him and kissed him. Isn't it interesting that in the old covenant, man sees the backside of God as he's walking away, and in the new covenant, the father runs face to face toward him and falls on him and kisses him face to face? Big difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Where's Jesus in the story? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the Father or one. See, the deal is this. All of us can identify with both of the sons in the story, but the reality is this. In the New Covenant, you take the posture of the heart of the Father. It's your eyes constantly on the horizon. Sometimes you let those sons and daughters take their journey, but without condemnation. Why? Because you know who they are, and there's nothing that they can do to change the authentic identity that you know. 
The father didn't have to go looking for the robe. He didn't have to go looking for the ring. It was right there. Mm -hmm. So now, having said all of that, let's come to this side of the cross and let's take the new covenant and see whether or not we can take that new covenant lens of identity and carry it into the book of Revelation. Hardest book to figure out in the Bible. I'm going to see if I can, what, what time are we supposed to be done? In five minutes? <clears throat> okay, so 10, 20, I don't know. So 25. So, so we're going to try to see if we can explain the entire book of Revelation in under 15 minutes. All right? The book of Revelation from a new covenant perspective is an incredible thing. Because when we get to things we don't understand, then we, get, we back up from them. We look at it from distance and separation. But a new, a new covenant revelation of Revelation chapter 320 starts like this. Jesus is standing, and I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to cut out a lot, all right? So I know what I'm doing here. There's a lot more to it than what I'm going to say. But Jesus is standing. He says, and behold, in Revelation 320, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. I will beat you up like the rotten sinner that you are. Just seeing if you're listening. It's not what he says. He says, I'm going to come in, we're going to break bread, and we're going to dine together. You understand, in Christ, in the new covenant, you don't have a sin nature anymore. You don't have a sin nature, you don't have a sin identity. Genesis 4, 7, God comes to Cain. Remember, Cain and Abel. God comes to Cain, and he says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God doesn't say to Cain, sin is in you because of what your parents did. Sin's always a choice. You can have a sin nature if you want one. Some of you feel like you have a sin nature because you've developed a sin lifestyle with sin habits and, and generated sin desires. But it's not your nature. In Christ, old things have passed away. All things have become new. We are learning how to live as adopted sons and daughters. We've come out of an abusive system from an abusive slave master, from abusive parents, and now we're the children of a really, really good dad, and we're still trying to figure out how this thing works. And he's constantly, by the power of his Holy Spirit, convincing us, convicting us of who we are, of our righteousness, right? So behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open the door, hear my voice, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to break bread with you. We're going to dine together. And then suddenly John says, I turned and beheld, and I saw a door standing open in heaven. So you have a tale of two doors here, one on God's end and one on our end. His is standing open, ours he's knocking on. So the only roadblock between a revelation of distance and separation is on our end, typically between our ears, right? And this is the danger of sin. It creates an illusion of distance and separation between you and God that God doesn't believe in. He's not afraid of sin. I need to say this is important. I'm not saying he's approving of it. You need to know he's not scared of sin. Well, Bill, my pastor told me one time that God can't look on sin. Find that in the Bible. If God couldn't look on sin, he would have never gone and looked for Adam and Eve when they fell. He's not scared of sin. Sin is annihilated at the gaze of righteousness himself. That's the beauty of this gospel that we have. You might be more saved than you know. It's so good. So John says, I'm 
in the Spirit now. He's already in the Spirit, by the way, in Revelation 1. Now he's in the Spirit, in the Spirit. It's like inception. I'm in the Spirit, in the Spirit. How deep can this thing go? Who knows? Now, Revelation 4, he sees the throne room of God. He sees God, angels standing around, flying all over the place. He sees the elders bowing down. You get to the end of Revelation chapter 4, and now something amazing happens. God is sitting on the throne. That's established in Revelation 4. In the beginning of Revelation chapter 5, you want to open up your Bibles to Revelation 5.1 and watch this with me. Because what you're about to see, by the way, this is going to help you a lot with Revelation. Revelation is essentially a play. Now, why do I say it's a play? Because God is a master storyteller. He always has been. And Mark's gospel says that Jesus always taught in parables, and without a parable, he did not teach. Why would Revelation be any different? All right? We create movies, plays, things like that to convey stories because we're made in the image and likeness of the master storyteller himself. So when God is putting something on display for John, a play has the ability to contain something called artistic license. In other words, it can convey something that seems to freak you out. Right? So here's the part that we're going to see that freaks John out. God is sitting on the throne. Now, is God worthy of everything? Absolutely. He's the only uncreated being there is. He's sitting on a throne. He's holding this book, a scroll. And a voice from a loud angel, a strong angel, comes out and says, who's worthy to open the book, to break the seals? And it says, Revelation 5, 2, and 3, says, no one in heaven or on earth could be found worthy to open the book. Nobody could be found worthy. Okay, stop for a second. Is God worthy of everything? And now what John is watching here before his very eyes is God himself, who he's given his life for, by the way, sitting on a throne holding a book he himself is unworthy to open. John is what, watching what appears to be a limitation that God has. And John's response is he weeps. This is why he's weeping. God's taking artistic license because he's about to show John something that's super important. Really a big deal. So here's God sitting there holding a book that he's unworthy to open. John is crying. There's an elder standing next to John who hits him and goes, knock it off. That's my paraphrase, by the way. Stop crying. Have you ever taken somebody to the movies that doesn't go to the movies very often and the story is really good and they're having like a really inappropriate emotional response to what's going on? They, they want to leave the theater. This is a terrible movie. I hate this. It's horrible. And you've seen it. You know what's going to happen. And you're like, oh my goodness. Just relax. Just stop it. Okay. It, it's going to be fine. Gandalf shows up. It's going to be okay. That's exactly what's happening here. John doesn't go to the movies very often, apparently. And so the elder goes, stop, 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 stop. Okay. John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is worthy to open the book. All right? And you can see John just going, wait, lion, tribe of Judah, what, Jesus? Jesus? And he turns and he sees a lamb because Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy, the lion and the lamb laying down together. I understand every person wants to walk with the strength and the power of the lion. But Jesus shows up in Revelation one time as a lion, 24 times as a lamb. So if you want to walk in the power of the lion, you've got to first embrace the heart of the lamb. John sees the lion and lamb united in Christ, and he shows up, and he is worthy to open the book. Okay, so let's go back to Revelation 5.1. God is sitting on a throne, and he is apparently unworthy to do something. Why is he doing this? Why is he appearing this way? 
He's appearing this way so that we will always know something super important about his son. It's almost like God appears to have a limit. And he's like, hey, guys, uh, nobody's worthy to open this. Anybody worthy? Oh, here comes Jesus. See, when God is sitting on the throne holding a book, he's apparently unworthy to open, and then Jesus shows up and he's worthy. This is God saying to all of humanity, I will not be God without my son. Heads up, humanity, 2,000 years from now, my son is going to be said to just be a good teacher, a prophet, or a spiritual leader. One of many. Don't ever relegate him to just being a man. He is as much God as I am. That's what's going on here. When you get a revelation of who God is, you see a humble father who, in a sense, elevates his son to carry the exact same authority. He says, I'm not going to be God without you, son. And you know what Jesus dying on a cross for humanity is? It's God saying to you and I, you're going to hell over my dead body. In other words, I will not be God without my son. And Jesus is saying, and I would rather die than live without you. Just let that sink in for a second. You just got to know how saved you are. He didn't wait until you got it right. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He's not sitting there bending his ear down, waiting for you to say the prayer we made up. I love the prayer. It's a good prayer. All the versions of it that we've made up. You say, what's well, in Romans 10, 9, and 10? Anybody get saved before Romans 10, 9, and 10 was written? Apparently not. How do you come to Christ? You say, forgive me and thank you. And then spend the rest of your life saying thank you. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God. The heart of gratitude in consistently offering worship to God is always the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Anything in where you're just like, thank you. Oh, thank, wow. Thank you. What? Thank you. Our entire life lived in thanksgiving for what he has done. It's the word gospel. It's all wrapped up in there. The gospel is good news. News is reporting that which has already happened. Preaching the gospel isn't trying to get you to come to Christ because you're scared. Understand, there's an alternative, and you can't erase that from theology, but it's not about being scared about the alternative. It's about being so enamored with what he has done that you can't see anything else that would cause you to come into partnership with the spirit of fear. I used to fill altars through fear back in the day. You can fill an altar with fear. It can get you scared enough of hell to get you up to an altar, freaking out, crying, weeping, repenting, and then you go out and live powerless. And I got tired of watching powerless believers. You know how you get powerful believers? is when people fall in love with the one who first loved them. We love him because he first loved us. So now, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, I'm compelled by love. I'm motivated by love. Why? Because I had a revelation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How is he doing it? By not counting your trespasses against you. It's not like he looked around and said, let me find somebody who's not trespassing and I'll reconcile them. He looked at a world that was completely lost in their trespasses and said, you know, I want my kids back. If you don't believe it, then you walk as if it never happened. And that becomes the experience that you have in this life, even though it's been bought and paid for and it's got your name on it. 
The adoption certificate's got your name written in blood on it. He's given you a blood transfusion. But if you don't know, if you don't believe it, if you don't step into the rested reality of your reconciled union with God solely because of what he did, then you walk as if it's never happened. That's why we made up the prayer. Because people need something to do. But you don't get saved because of what you did. All you did was awaken to what he did. And if that's a prayer, that's beautiful. If it's just you crying in thanksgiving, that's beautiful. If it's just you laughing uncontrollably because suddenly the blinders are taken off and you can see, that's beautiful. However you receive the spirit of adoption, welcome home. Welcome home. But it's not by formula. It's by blood. Close your eyes for a second. I want you to picture something with me. I want you to picture the throne room of God. And having pictured the throne room of God, you see God sitting on the throne. I want you to hear the sounds. I'm going to do this too quick, but, but, but let your mind just race with me a little bit. Hear the sounds of the throne room of heaven. How high are the walls? Can you even see the ceiling? What color are they? Gold, blue. What's the, what's the floor look like? Are you standing on gold? Is it crystal? Are you lifted off the floor? What, what's happening in this room right now? Is there worship? And where are you? This is my question. Where are you in the throne room? Maybe some of you are like on your knees before the throne in your mind. Maybe some of you are standing before the throne. you got your hands raised high. Maybe some of you are, are like looking for people that you know. Or I heard one, somebody say one time, I'm outside and I feel like there's something amazing going on in there, but I don't feel worthy to go in. But where are you in the throne room? Open your eyes. I'm not going to ask for any show of hands. Just keep this one to yourself. But I'm curious to know if anybody saw themselves sitting on the throne. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Oh, wait, Bill. Can't do that. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Let's hear the words of Jesus here. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. I'm going to borrow my friend Martin. Martin, come up here. This is Martin Kaufman. He's a dear brother of mine, long, long, long time friend. Martin and Chelsea and their kids are family to us. So, The posture that you carry is a union. In the new covenant, that union doesn't stop in heaven. To him who overcomes, says Jesus. In other words, you want to know your posture in the throne room? You're sitting with him on the throne. Okay? This is not new theology. This is old theology that we got to recover. Paul knew this 2,000 years ago. It's why he wrote, We are present tense right now, seated in heavenly places with Christ. It's where we are. What does it mean to be in the throne? It's hard, it's hard to figure out, but, but if you can't picture it, then be like a child and picture yourself crawling up in dad's lap up in a good father's lap. That's where your posture is. And you'll discover, though, in him, you're now without age. In him, he teaches you how to walk as a king and a priest unto him. He, in, in him, he teaches you how to live as royalty. Now you begin to make declarations and decrees that shift and shape reality around you. 
So let me make this super practical because it's really hard for you to go out of here going, okay, so I'm sitting on the throne, mind-blowing, but what do I do with that? So I'm going to bring Martin up here and just stand right here in the center. Uh, let's see. Let me borrow somebody else here. Can you help me out? What's your name? John, come on up. I don't know how good quality this is, but we're going to use this. Martin, I want you to put your hands out in front of you just like this, and I want you to take and just wrap those around, wrap that around his hands like, like, uh, like you're bandaging up a mummy, and then just take it all the way around his arms, take it up all the way around his head, just, you know, go with it. I'm going to talk to you real quick about what you do with this posture of royalty, what you have access to, because oftentimes when we approach people who are locked in sin, locked in darkness, locked in the lie, not being, not being able to believe what Christ has done for them, and this is how we see them. In John chapter 11, there's an amazing story of a guy by the name of Lazarus. And Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus's. Jesus knows that Lazarus is dying, and Lazarus does. He passes away. He dies. And he's dead for four days, which is how long you had to be dead in order for a person to really qualify as the, 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 the dead in Jewish culture. So Jesus stays away exactly as long as he needs to. He's definitely going to want to cover up his eyes, too. So, yeah, go for his head. You can, you can put your hands down if you know, in front of you if you want. Because that could get hard for a dead person to hold their arms up after a while. So, so when Lazarus dies, the people do something interesting. They notice he's dead, and so you do what you do with a dead body, and that is you'd wrap it in linen and spices. In other words, you'd wrap it in grave clothes. Why? Because he's dead. Jesus shows up, and he steps into the middle of their story, steps into the middle of their pain, and he weeps with them. He knows he's about to bring hope, but he is stepping right into the middle of their grief. See, he steps in the valley of the shadow of death with you only to reveal to you that death is nothing but a shadow. He doesn't invalidate your valley. He doesn't invalidate your pain. He doesn't invalidate your shadow. He steps right in the middle of it with you only for the purpose of bringing you out because he doesn't leave you where he found you. And you in him don't have to leave people where you find them either. When we see somebody is dead and we recognize them as dead, what we do is we basically say they're good for nothing anymore. And so in our mind, we bandage them up by tying their hands. That means they can't do anything for God. And we tie their feet. That means they can't go anywhere for God. And we cover their eyes so they can't see what God is doing. We cover their mouth so they can't speak anything out. We silence their ears. We silence their mouth. We silence their speech. We clothe a person who is dead. From our perspective, they're good for nothing, so we just let them go. And there's a lot of people walking around like this all around us. How can you do something about this? The first thing you got to do is you got to be willing to step close enough to be able to do something about this. Grave clothes are nasty, they're junky, they smell rank. You got to get close enough to somebody's world to even touch these grave clothes. Who wants to do that? You can't set somebody free from a distance. You got to step into their story. But you can do so knowing that you're seated with him in heavenly places and nothing's knocking you off the throne. Once you know that, hey, there's something that changes. Your whole perspective changes. Now you go into every situation knowing that you're already victorious before you've even started. So Jesus steps before the, 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 the tomb of Lazarus, and he has him roll the stone away, and he cries out with a loud voice and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out, the Bible says, John 11, bound hand and foot, just like this. I don't know how he got out, bound hand and foot. Maybe an angel carried him, dropped him off outside. You can go ahead and stop. That's a thorough job if I've ever seen one. 
But don't leave, John. Don't, don't leave. All right. So, John, right? Okay. So, Lazarus now is standing there hand and foot. He is now gone from dead to alive. And Jesus is never wasting a moment. He's gone from dead to totally alive, but he's still wearing the grave clothes. And now Jesus does what I think is the weirdest part of the story. He looks at people and he says, unbind him and let him go free. Wait a minute. Jesus has just done the hard thing. He's raised a four-day dead guy who's already decomposing and smelling from the dead. Can't he just snap his fingers and use his awesome Jesus powers to let the grave clothes fall off? He could, but he's not wasting a word and he's not wasting a breath. He looks at the people who wrapped him up and say, you take off the grave clothes that you put on him. He gives us the responsibility of looking at people that he on the cross has provided eternal life for. But we leave them in their grave clothes. We don't want to get close because they smell. He looks at us and says, you, take the grave clothes off. If you don't think you've got authority, you'll never feel qualified to do this. But hey, you're sitting on the throne. How much more authority do you need than seated with him on the throne? What if your words of declaration, the love of just listening to somebody in a bar tell you about their life for two hours and then hearing the Holy Spirit say, put your hand on their shoulder. Get in their Kool-Aid, get in their world, get in their life and watch what God will do. He wants to set people free, but he's going to do it through you. He's empowered you to be the one that actually takes the grave clothes off of the people that he has brought back to life. Who did Jesus not die for? The ones who don't qualify in our estimation are the ones that we leave the grave clothes on. And he's still telling us, humanity, 2,000 years ago, you carry the royal identity and the priestly authority, and you take the grave clothes off of these people. So, John, you put them on, so you get to take them off. And once we step close enough to be able to, go ahead, to take, you could just rip them, I don't care. Just t once you step close enough to be able to take the grave clothes off of somebody, guess what? They get free. The grace you give away can actually set somebody free. And you know, just, and this is it, every time I ever do this illustration, the guy who was wrapped up always turns to the guy who wrapped him up and embraces him. Hand, five, slap, fist bump, whatever. What happens? There's connection. What is God doing? He's building unity in the body of Christ. How is he doing it? Through grace-filled believers who know that they're sitting on the throne with him. And when they make declarations that carry the weight of heaven behind it, the grave clothes can't help but begin to fall off. You guys can have a seat. Thank you so much. Stand with me tonight. Some of you can feel these things still wrapped around you. And I love what Brian did tonight. It's like, it's like we're doing things backwards, but it's so perfect. This is what he was talking about earlier. Yes, something you need to let go of. And some of you, it's like somebody wants to take that grave cloth off, and you're like, no, 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 that, that's mine. It's my identity. It's who I am. 
Hey, who was blind Bartimaeus once he got his sight back? Wasn't blind Bartimaeus anymore. Had to change his name. For some of you, this identity has been yours for so long, and you take it off, you don't even know who you are anymore. So all you can see is yourself in him. One more time, close your eyes. Holy Spirit, tonight I pray that you would release a wave of grace over this room that would cause all of the lies and the labels that we believed about ourselves, the lies and the labels that have allowed us to hold on to the grave clothes that keep our ears closed to hearing your voice, that keep our eyes closed to seeing what you're doing, that keep our mouth stopped from speaking and worshiping, that keep our hands tied from doing what you're asking us to do and keep our feet tied from going where you want us to go. Father, I pray that tonight there would be such a wave of grace and worthiness because of who you are. Jesus, we recognize here in 2019, it's so important. And we acknowledge that you're not just a man. And you were never just a religious leader. That you are very God of very God. And we thank you for bleeding out for us your own creation. And that at our worst moment, declaring over us, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. God, we recognize the power of your grace tonight. So, Lord, tonight I break off every addiction in this room. I break off every offense in this room. Every chain of guilt and shame. Tonight it breaks, broken, and it goes. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you tonight would release a freedom in this room. So I declare freedom, freedom and liberty. Tonight, if you feel the chains just, just going off of you tonight, just let your hands leave their sides and just lift them up. Lift them up. Tip your head back and drink deep. Drink deep. Just let him pour into you. Let him pour into you. And we live by a sequence of breathing. That is taking in and giving out. So as he pours into you and you feel that pouring in, you may respond by saying, thank you, Jesus, or letting your tongue just be loosed to let the Holy Spirit praise through you, worship through you. So let your voice be loosed tonight. Just lift up a sound, an offering of sound to the Lord tonight, an offering of sound to the Lord tonight, an offering of praise to the Lord tonight. Don't worry about the person sitting around you. Just begin to lift up a sound. Lift up a sound. Lift up a sound. Lift it up. Lift it up. Lift it up. Let it rise. Let it rise. Let it rise. Let it rise.